Hi, this is Kirk Reed. Bear with me as we need a little compliance disclosure. In our practice, we give financial advice to our clients. We know their financial situation in detail before doing so. That's generally not the case with callers we speak with on the show. We can't give truly meaningful financial advice because we don't know the detailed financial situation of the caller. After all, we just met. Any suggestions we make to callers are generic in nature and meant to steer a caller in the right direction. Callers should check with their own financial professionals before implementing any suggestions that we may make. At times on this show, we talk about investments and investment performance. Investment returns are not guaranteed and past performance does not guarantee future results. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. Happy weekend, everybody. Got a great show lined up for you this morning. My guest this morning um, has been on the show once before, so this is not your first appearance, but second one. Heard you were great the last time uh, you were on with Justin. Attorney Sean P. Kelly with Marcotte Law Firm uh, based out of Lowell. Good morning, Sean. How are you? Hi, Alyssa. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. We are going to talk mostly this morning about bankruptcy, how people get to that point, how to decide if you're that point, the the specifics and the logistics and the options regarding bankruptcy. And then maybe at the end, we'll we'll do some other uh, legal matter type stuff if we have enough time. So my title for today's show is Bankruptcy and Other Legal Matters. So before we get started, Sean, I know you've been on the show before, but just wanted to give you a uh, however long you want, a minute or two or whatever, just to a uh, little bit of background on yourself and your law firm, which is Marcotte Law Firm uh, in Lowell. Do you want to take a minute yeah. to do that? Great. Thanks, Alyssa. Yeah. yeah so again, my name is Sean Kelly. Uh, happy to be here. I've been an attorney for about 10 years now. Uh, my office is currently out in uh, Lowell, Massachusetts. We have a few satellite offices in Andover and Woburn, mm-hmm. uh, but we are the Marcotte Law Firm. It's a mid-sized law firm of five attorneys, and we do um, mostly injury work. We do all sorts of litigation, things like that. Um, But I handled the firm's bankruptcy and financial issues. So it's great work. I love doing it. On the side, in my personal life, I live in Westford, uh, sit on the Westford School Committee and and volunteer some time in in Westford. So uh, really excited to be here. And thanks again for having me. I saw that. Awesome. Thank you so much again for being here. And I had had asked another gentleman to call in this morning if he could chime in. And so we'll we'll see if we have a third guest this morning. But if not, I'm sure we can fill the time and and on some interesting topics related, mostly related to bankruptcy. So I just wanted to start before getting into the specifics about the two different types of bankruptcy, chapter seven and chapter 13, right? Um, I I just wanted to sort of like, I don't know, sort of preface it, right? So so how do people, um, I keep fussing with my microphone here because we're recording the Zoom and it's like the floating microphone. (laughs) Um, How does someone know that they're, I don't know, maybe this is a dumb question, but like how does someone know that they're at the point where this is, this is the, you know, the, the, the uh, direction that I need to take, or I don't know, maybe yeah. getting into like, yeah. what are the, la- what are the last resort steps? Or I just wanted to yeah. sort of preface right. it, right? Like, how do we know that we're there? Right. So that, it, it's a really, really good question, Alyssa. And what I would say is for everyone, it's a little different, right? Mm-hmm. But 
I, I can speak to how our clients usually come to us, which is usually something bad's happening. And it's not just that they're getting a few letter to, uh, letters from a creditor or that they're getting some calls from a creditor, things like that. It's, it's usually something worse. So either litigation started, so they maybe they'll get a summons in the mail saying that someone is trying to attach to their wages. Maybe it's a credit card company mm-hmm. or uh, maybe they're getting notice of a foreclosure proceeding on their house and things like that can be really scary, right? And they don't know what to do. Oftentimes it's the first time that they've received a court summons and they'll give us a call and they'll say, look, what can we do? And, you know, we have to act quickly. Um, So oftentimes the they don't have a choice but to file for bankruptcy, right? If they want to keep the house, the only option to stop the foreclosure proceeding is to file for bankruptcy, right? Or if they're about to attach to your wages, the alternative to letting them attach your, to, to, letting them attach your wages is to file for bankruptcy, right? So oftentimes there's no there's no option besides that. Now, of course, we do get some people who come in who uh, are having some debt issues, things like that, and and we'll discuss with them. But we don't we don't always suggest bankruptcy right away, right? Like that's we get it. It's not right for everyone. It, it lingers on your credit report for a while. Yeah. It um, it can follow you. It yeah. can have implications. So we have to discuss with the client extensively as to whether or not this is right for them, uh, particularly in, the, in those situations where we're not dealing with, let's say, like a foreclosure or an attachment or something like that. Okay. So talk to me about like, if I'm a, if I'm a creditor, right? If I'm a, if yeah. I'm a lender and um, I've issued a mortgage to someone and they're not paying the mortgage, what, what, is the, what are the creditor steps? Are they standard in terms of how many days elapse before, you know, and so a certain number of notices are sent before, you know, court proceedings? Like what are the steps from the creditor's perspective? Yeah, yeah. So they'll they'll eventually institute a foreclosure proceeding, um, and they have to put the the creditor on. Uh, I'm sorry, the debtor, which is you know the person who we the borrower. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they would put the borrower on notice, and then they would institute an auction sale. Okay. Um, the auction sale they'll get notice of, and the uh, there's a certain amount of days. There's there's a certain amount of days that the uh, debtor can essentially redeem the property back. So there's, there's windows for opportunity to fix it. Um, but oftentimes, particularly, and I'm happy to get into the specifics of it, a chapter 13 immediately stays the foreclosure proceeding um, and, okay. and gives us a lot of wiggle room as to help someone who's having foreclosure issues. And how quickly are banks progressing with legal proceedings? Is it like two mortgage payments are missed or is it like six mortgage payments or is it all over the map in terms of how quickly they would react? Yeah, it depends on the creditor, okay. but it generally uh, it, you'd have to... Generally, it comes up after like six months okay. of missed payments. Okay. Um, and then there'll be several months of, you know, letters. Notices. That that, it, it yeah. Increasingly get yeah. a little more. <laughs> the uh, wording irritable. becomes a little bit more stringent yeah. as time goes on. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, Sean, we actually do have Peter Mullen with the American Consumer Credit oh, Counseling, uh, with American Consumer Credit Counseling um, on the line with us. And I just, I wanted him to chime in during this part of our discussion regarding, you know, leading up to potentially filing bankruptcy. Peter, are you there? 
Yes, I am. Oh, can you hear me? Good. I can. Yes. Thank you so much for calling in. I emailed Peter at like 530 this morning and was like, hey, I'm doing my outline. I just realized that it would be great for you to you join us on today's show. So thanks for being available this morning, Peter. You're welcome. So, Peter, I don't know if you heard my introduction, but on uh, the line with me, I also have Sean Kelly, who's a bankruptcy attorney with Marcotte Law Firm in Lowell. And Sean's been on the show before and was great. And we haven't gotten into the specifics regarding uh, how to, you know, filing bankruptcy and, and the aftermath and all that stuff. And we'll get into that today. Sure. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about yeah. like leading up to it. And I know that Peter, you and mm-hmm. I have talked about, we've had discussions about, I guess, some of the things that might lead up or, or some steps that people mm-hmm. might take in advance of, or, or to try to avoid filing for bankruptcy. Yeah. And that's like negotiations with creditors and things like that. So can you chime in on that? Cause I know you have a lot of experience regarding negotiating with creditors. Sure. Thank you very much. And yeah. uh, good morning, Sean. Hi, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. So, yeah, let me tell you um, from my perspective how I would um, kind of look at the whole thing. First, um, n- nothing against Sean or anything, but I would generally say to folks, bankruptcy should be kind of your last option. <laughs> it sounds like Sean um, sort of agreed, so no offense so, taken, I'm sure. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's really it, it's really a pretty um, strong option, let's just put it that way. So yeah. here's what would lead up to it. I mean, uh, we are open to counseling, coaching, and basically people lay before us all their challenges, issues, financial challenges they're facing. The biggest one is people, unfortunately, are often buried in debt to the point in which they start to feel, hey, I can't even afford my monthly bills. And then when you're starting to then pull on your credit cards to help you get through your month, then that's a, a very negative sign. So... What our organization would do as a nonprofit would try to do that full, full analysis of where they are today. You know, good, good, bad, or ugly. What, what, what is your income? What are your debts? What are you facing? And then after an hour or so of full analysis, we would try to come back to them with options and say, it looks like these are the things you could do. You could do a debt consolidation plan, like a debt management plan to get rid of your credit card debt. You could do this thing where you consolidate through like a, a, a uh, like a lender, but then again, that's a challenge. If they have poor credit, then Citizens Bank isn't about to give them a personal loan. Mm. Um, but then, of course, along the line of the spectrum, there is, of course, bankruptcy chapter 7 and 13, which we would say to them uh, from our perspective would be, these are your options. Now, if you pick one of them, we can tell you what that means. We aren't here to tell you what to pick, but we would say these are the kinds of things that we see sitting in front of you. Yeah. So talk to me about, like, from the lender's perspective. Do do lenders want to negotiate? Would they prefer to negotiate down an interest rate or or negotiate a payment plan? Or, you know, they have deep pockets. Are they perfectly fine, you know, taking somebody to court? Like, you know, what's your experience with both of you gentlemen? What's your experience with Mm -hmm. lenders themselves? Well, my, I'll start. My, my experience is that really that's not something they prefer. Uh, the lenders are generally not in the bank, uh, in the house owning business. They are not wanting to throw, you know, little old ladies and their children out in the street. That's that's not what they're really interested in doing. They are negotiate. They are interested in negotiating and finding interim solutions based on your money capability. Okay. So therefore. Many times that's where I think chapter 13 comes in as an idea, which is rather than getting nothing, most lenders want something, right? So therefore, if you can entice them with, look, I can't pay you 100% of what I owe you, 
but I can pay you 75 or I can pay 50% or 25% or we can delay it. I know I can do in 10 years, but if we were to extend this to 15 years, you know, I'm just making this up, we could probably do a payment plan with you. And there's things called like forbearance with, for instance, with foreclosure that down that whole pathway that yes, banks are generally, not all, generally willing to find a solution in which they can get a flow of money. Okay. A flow of money is better than nothing. Yeah. Sean, do you have much experience with banks and like are there, their willingness yeah. to cooperate and negotiate and all that? So what I'll say is in my prior life, uh, my first job out of law school, I was actually a collection attorney. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the, the practice. Um, and I think Peter captured it well. Uh, yeah, the general rule, and, and the courts follow this rule too, is that they don't, no one wants banks to own property, right? Like it's, it, no one wins if a bank owns a property. Okay. Um, except for someone who's buying it at an auction for short money. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, so, so they're generally willing to enter into agreements, particularly to make back those arrears um, and some sort of payment plan that kind of works for everyone. Um, now, the how, how we use that oftentimes to get leverage is we'll file what's called the Chapter 13 petition, which Peter alluded to, which is a wage earners plan. And that that kind of brings the the lender to the table and forces them to discuss with us as to, hey, what um, what are some options here? Um, and oftentimes that will result in the Chapter 13 plan even being dismissed if we can come, come to an agreement. Or um, if they're severely in arrears, things like that, then the Chapter 13 plan will give us three to five years to pay back those arrears and to get them uh, caught up current, uh, which the lender has no say in. I, generally, you want to bring them on board and make sure that they're all 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 on board. But yeah. um, the Chapter Thirteen plan can basically force that force their hand. Okay. So uh, you know there there are options, and, and bankruptcy gives you those options. But as Peter discussed, like the bankruptcy is generally the last option, and and it's it's generally after. Uh, something bad has happened, like a lawsuit's been filed, something like that. But yeah. up to that point, when you st if you are getting notices in the mail or collection notices, yeah, it's it's good to get someone involved, like me or Peter, to uh, who who might be able to sit down with you and say, hey, are you actually able to pay this back? Because yeah. if you are able to pay it back, or maybe you could borrow money from someone, or like we might be able to get these uh, these. Uh, creditors off your back, at least for the meantime, or at least kind of delay them from uh, pursuing the option of foreclosure or a wage attachment or something like yeah. that. It's possible to to successfully negotiate with lenders without filing for bankruptcy though, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that just takes a, a phone call and someone who's, uh, who knows what collectors are thinking. Right. Um, and, I'm sure Peter does this all the time and we do from time to time too. Like, but if, if they're, if they're a second away from getting a wage attachment and they can get 15% of your gross wages, of course, they're going to take that any day of the week yeah. over you saying, look, I'll give you $50 a, a month. So it has to be within reason. Right. Okay. And, and, and oftentimes banks will take short money, particularly outside of the foreclosure context. If we're just talking about like a credit card debt or something, they'll take, substantially less if you can come up with a lump sum across one or two payments. So, and, and often they'll do that. Um, sometimes they'll do it prior to, uh, to litigation. Yeah. Peter and Peter, yeah. I'm sure you have lots of, uh, instances of success with negotiations with creditors without a bankruptcy being filed, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, we, from my perspective, and both in this current world, and I also was a first-time home buying counselor prior to this world. So I'm aware on both sides, the bankruptcy and foreclosure sides of the life of life, and that is exactly right. There's lots of things people can pursue ahead of time, and so the kind of the strategies related to what Sean is saying, for instance, let's just say someone can't pay fully uh, a mortgage or something that they owe. We would be advising them that there are other options. Have the right attitude. Have the attitude that you're cooperative, number one. Some people are belligerent, and it's harder uh, to work with them if they're much more, you know, uh, like adversarial to their lenders. If they're yeah. more, you know, like, hey, let's work this out attitude, I generally find there's a reciprocal side on yeah. the banking side, the lender side of, look, okay, we understand you had COVID or someone passed away or someone lost their job. Okay, you can't afford 100%, but can, can we work this out, 50%? Yeah. And in the meantime, while yeah. they're not paying, we would advise them, for instance, back to what Sean said, maybe they can be saving the money they aren't paying into an account. And then a year from now, they have a lump sum, which becomes part of the carrot that they're able to then put out there and say, look, you know, you know, I can't pay you this, but I can give you 5,000 cash right now. And would you then, you know, work with me to help pay the rest, you know, over this 10 year period? That might be the way that you are much more cooperative and it works on both sides, you know? I love that you just brought up uh, cooperativeness and attitude. Like, I, I feel like I'm mm-hmm. constantly having these conversations with my children, right? Like, if you're going to work out a problem, you need to be polite mm-hmm. and respectful. That's like adulting 101, Absolutely. right? But it's, but that's just, it is. It, it, it's, I'm sure people going through this are very, you know, angry and frustrated and, you know, can easily uh, lose tempers. But um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, sort of the personal side of that. It, yeah. It, it's very true. Well, if you think about it, money overall, and this is like I've mentioned this to you before about kind of on your show. Yeah. There's a whole emotional background about money. Yeah. And so some people are kind of in tune with it. Some people are totally out of tune with it and are unrealistic about it. And so, yes, some people are adversarial from the get-go. Yeah. Why is the man taking my money? Why is the man charging me interest? Why is the man, like, ripping me off with this house? Well, that's not a good starting attitude. Mm-hmm. You're the one that took out the mortgage. You're the one that bought the house. You're the one yeah. that made these decisions. And I'm not trying to blame you, but we got to work together with the right, you know, conciliatory attitude of, okay, uh, this is not a good situation. Hmm. What can we do to get out of it? Yeah. Do you guys, um, I, I was trying to pull some statistics and numbers regarding like how common it is how many people file for bankruptcy annually. Um, I, I don't know if I don't know if this is a very reputable website, but I found a website called uscourts.gov. It's not a uh, yeah uscourts.gov. Have you heard of that? Um, th- anyway, they had some statistics regarding annual bankruptcy filings in 2020 totaled about 544,000, and in 2019 totaled about 775,000. Do you guys have any idea if those numbers? It, it, that I mean, that's that's half the, a million, three uh, quarters of a million. That's the people. United States federal courts website. Oh, so, awesome! So it's yeah. very, probably pretty so reputable. Okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> thank yeah. you. So, uh, good. I, I'm sorry, Alyssa. That was uh, so they went. It, it went down. It went down. So it said yeah. 2019 was about three quarters of a million, seven hundred and seventy-five thousand, right. and in 2020, five hundred and forty-four thousand. I think I saw. I think it was on the same website where I saw that bankruptcy filings 
peaked in 2005, which is no surprise, right? Coming out of the um, the credit crisis, right? And mm-hmm. um, and but but so I don't know. And again, I don't know like how if those are average over 10, 20 years or whatever. But I was just trying to do some quick math and comparing it to the population. So, so if I use an average of six hundred thousand. Those two numbers roughly average 600,000. I know it's only two years worth of data, but um, if that were a rough average, so that means like over a generation, something or 25 years, right? Roughly a generation. Over a generation, about 15 million people would be filing for bankruptcy, which is almost 5% of the population. When I don't know, I, I guess I was sort of processing that and I wasn't like, I don't know if that's high or low. I guess it's pretty low. You know, it was actually about four and a half percent of the population. So that's, it sounds Good. like a lot of people. It is a lot of people, right? Half a million, three quarters of a million people per year, but relative to the population, it's a relatively small percentage. So I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think I, I, there was, I was reading something that there was all this thought that when, when COVID occurred, right, that that there was going to be this flood of bankruptcies and that everyone who lost their job was now going to be um, seeking bankruptcy protections. And surprisingly, like, that hasn't really come to fruition. And I don't know, it might just be because there's a tail to it, right? Because there were so many uh, state benefits and additional COVID relief that people could seek that held things off, like unemployment, extended unemployment and, you know, higher. Right, Right, exactly. Right, the trillions of dollars of federal stimulus stimulus yeah, yeah, yeah. Years. so maybe that maybe that tale is going to come to fruition at yeah. some point um, but i i think what 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 peter's pointed to about the collaboration with the creditors like i what i've seen is is that creditors are generally uh their understanding of the covid pandemic like they they understand and they've been offering certain payment plans and certain lump sums that are much lower than i've seen in the past prior to covid and i think it's really as a result of the covid 19 pandemic and again it goes back to peter's statement that the bank would rather see a steady flow of cash as opposed to no cash at all yeah absolutely all right we do actually need to take a break um so you're listening to mcnamara on money i'm speaking with attorney sean p kelly with marcotte law firm in Lowell and offices where else, Sean? Andover. Andover and Woburn. Andover and Woburn. Thank you. Um, And also Peter Mullen. Thank you last minute uh, for joining us from American Consumer Credit Counseling. Peter, you're welcome to stay on the line. You're welcome to drop. Um, We're going to probably get into some specifics regarding the two different types of uh, bankruptcies. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll stay for after the break, and then I'll have to leave. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, and Tim was waving his finger that I'm too early for the break, or <laughs> no, no, I just I, oh. I, you know, when you got one minute and oh, okay. Yeah. Um, all right, we're talking about bankruptcy this morning. We're going to get into some specifics about the two different types. And actually, I just um, I, I just a minute ago I caught an error that I made. I said that that I think that you that USCourts.gov website said that bankruptcies peaked in 2005. That was before the credit crisis. That was actually coming out of the tech bubble. Remember the yeah. tech boom in the late 90s and then the tech yeah. bubble? Well, the, I, I just think of years in terms the of what the stock market dug, uh, did, but um, but that could be related to, you know, people uh, feeling wealthy during the tech boom, right, and, and spending at higher levels than they could have, and then the tech bubble, and then and lots of credit card debt, or they bought a house too expensive, and all that stuff. But anyway, just wanted to correct that mistake. Um, you're listening to McNamara on Money. We're just taking a quick break. We'll be right back. 
This is Mike McNamara. If you're looking for a financial advisor, start by asking him or her three questions. Number one, are you a certified financial planner practitioner? Number two, are you legally held to a fiduciary standard of care for your clients? And number three, do you only give financial advice and not sell investment products? These are all simple yes-no questions. If he or she doesn't answer yes quickly and starts talking, that's a no, and it's time to move on to another advisor. And we're back. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. Good morning, everyone. Talking about largely about bankruptcy this morning and uh, sort of preface the discussion by talking about how do people know when they're there and and maybe steps to take to avoid bankruptcy. And now I, I do want to get into some of the specifics and logistics regarding filing for bankruptcy. My guest this morning, I have two right now, but first guest is Sean Kelly, who's a bankruptcy attorney for Marcotte Law Firm with offices in Lowell, Andover, and Woburn. Did I get that right? You did. Yep. Good morning. Thanks so much for being here. Um, And also Peter Mullen, who called in uh, to join us for a little bit with American Consumer Credit Counseling. Peter's been on the show several times and we always have a great show and can chat all, all sort of all things finance. But I just, I do want to get into the specifics of the two options for filing for bankruptcy. But before I get that, I just had one other question regarding, I don't know, like leading up to, uh, to bankruptcy. I just wondered from your perspective, uh, Sean, is this, are people finding themselves in this situation more commonly because of significant amounts of credit card debt or because they just can't pay their mortgages? And is it, is it stemming from notices from their mortgage lender? Is it mostly medical bill related? Like, do you, what's your experience in terms of why people are at this point? So I, I've been doing this from since 2015 and I, I can say since I started doing it, um, the usual suspects are, are credit card debt, right? Okay. Um, and, and credit card debt can be complicated because oftentimes it comes with interest rates and late payments and interest rates that are, you know, 26, 27%. So it's a lot, right? Yeah. Um, but the, the, the one that I'm, that I'm actually putting more and more people through for bankruptcies are um, medical debt. And that I think is a sign of our times that particularly co-payments, and deductibles and insurance plans can really be debilitating for a family, especially if you're living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Uh, you know, the idea that if you have a unexpected surgery that you're gonna have to come up with five grand out of pocket because that's what your deductible is, uh, can really debilitate a family if, you know, again, they're living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, I did see some statistics when I was doing a little bit of research this morning that medical bills are, are um, uh, it's it's very commonly caused by medical uh, bills. And it actually surprised me because, you know, in Massachusetts, we have the mandate where everyone needs to have health insurance. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's, you know, mo- most employers seem to have gone toward, you know, the root of the high deductible health plan and maybe many people in general just because the premiums are so much more affordable. But I guess it just surprised me. I was like, well, in Massachusetts, everyone has health insurance. Why is this the case? But just because of the what can still be pretty significant out of pocket right. expenses when you have even even if you have health insurance so that's, that's Absolutely. I mean and you can think yeah. of it, like not all health plans are created equal. Yeah. So if if you have a if you have a surgery or something that unexpected event that happens in November and let's say that you need a surgery in November and December, you're hit with a $5,000 deductible then and then you start doing your rehab in January then you have another $5,000 deductible then just in those three month period, you've now acquired what $10,000 worth of debt. Yeah. So it's, you can see it, it, 
it can hit, uh, yeah, hit the and, family pretty and hard. couple that yeah. with if you can't be working because of a medical issue or whatever, so yeah. loss of income and, and things like that. So yeah, yeah that's yeah. pretty awful. Okay, um, Peter, did you Wait, have something to add? Yeah, I was wondering yeah. just a few things. Yeah. Uh, just going from the last segment, number one, uh, you were talking a little bit of history of, of bankruptcies going up or down. Yeah. I can just say anecdotally from our business, we're always tracking and being very, very aware of credit card debt, okay. as um, as Sean has just mentioned. And here's the interesting thing. During the whole COVID time, it actually all went down. Um, people's credit card debt, which is really one of our main things, that debt management plan, if they need it, went down and now has started to increase again. So okay. for whatever reason, people, I think, were more housebound, maybe yeah. buying less, maybe much more uh, sharp about their money, where it's going feeling less secure in the sense that I can just keep on buying, buying, buying. So it went down. Well, people weren't people spending as much. Are, are people feeling, also weren't spending as much money traveling and dining out and thing like right. a lot of their oh, discretionary exactly. spending had come way down. Translation, exactly. less money, less, less charges going onto the credit card, but also more cash to, to pay down credit card balances. And, and some yeah. people were earning more on unemployment than they had been in their regular jobs. So I, I think That's a lot of things could have uh, uh, added to that. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. I was laid off for nine months and I did make more money on unemployment than I do at my nonprofit. But that's an aside. So let's talk briefly about medical as you're now bringing that up. So here's an interesting new fact, and I'm sure Sean knows this. It's actually one, I guess, positive development. Um, recently, they've placed medical debt, uh, meaning that it's not reported for a year now. Normally, the way the process works for most creditors are that after someone gets to be delinquent on a payment, like 30 days, 60 days, then they, they, they get back at you, so to speak, by reporting you to the credit bureaus. The law has just been passed that you, you have to let a year go by now. So therefore, there's a longer run of allowing people to, I'm not saying it's a positive thing, but they're not reported at least until they get to the year mark on medical debt recognizing so many people are still reeling from the COVID crisis. Okay. Do you think that will be a permanent change, that it'll be a year before they're reporting? I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping that it will be. Okay. I'm, again, uh, here's the, the big key difference I see between medical debt and credit card debt. As a general rule, credit, credit card debt is a choice. Medical debt is not. You don't generally go out and select a, an illness you want or a, a COVID problem or a you know medical condition. You do, however, and I'm sorry, but that's generally the case, people do select to continue to buy, 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 even though they can't afford it. There is okay. a difference there. Okay. Hey, I found, I found a little bit more information on that uscourts.gov website going back a few years regarding annual bankruptcy filings. This looks like it does include businesses, but businesses are a pretty small percentage of the number. So, um... It looks like, oh, I'm sorry, they do separate. 2017 non-business bankruptcy filings, 767,000. 2018, following year, pretty close, 750,000. 2019, 750,000. 2020, 590,000. So pretty big drop there. 2021, 418,000. Yeah, I mean, I, you, you hear all over the place about how uh, families are pretty financially healthy right now. They're more financially healthy now than they have been in recent years. Um, people have money to spend, money in the bank, personal cash balances are 
Um, our, our household cash balances are higher um, now than they've been in recent years. And, and, and I think largely related to people haven't been spending as much money on discretionary things and had more money in the bank. And, and like we just talked about, unemployment was so fantastic the last couple of years and people made more oftentimes on that than they did in their in their uh, regular jobs. So, um, so that's interesting. So it looks like they've come down quite a bit over the last few years. Remains to be seen how... Um, how that changes they this the court system does break it down by all the different chapters um and it looks like mostly chapter seven um yeah and 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 that's probably a reflection to Alyssa is that a lot of the banks were holding off on foreclosures and stuff because you couldn't uh actually evict people for a while particularly oh that's right i forgot about that right 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 right. so so you're gonna see so So we're gonna see it go back up yeah, in chapter okay. thirteen is is that's that's the primary plan that we're going to focus on if someone's a homeowner, right? Yeah, because okay. that state that stops the foreclosure uh, proceeding and brings the lender to the table to renegotiate. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I think that probably makes sense that that went down again. I I I don't think I can explain why it went down completely, um, except to say that I I, I think. We'll probably see a tail at some point, but mm. it, it doesn't seem like it's going to be as monumental as everyone um, as everyone kind of forecasted. So maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that means that those stimulus payments and that the uh, higher unemployment payments actually really did help help families. Uh, certainly uh, did. Certainly did. I don't think they're helping with the inflation situation, but helping right. in other in some other regards. Um, let, can we get into the specifics about the two different types um, of of bankruptcies for individuals? So in which one do you want to start with? Do you want to start with chapter 13? Certainly. They're, they're all kind of related. Um, so I, I'll get the one that I'm out of the way that I'm not going to spend much time on, which is a chapter 13, or okay. sorry, a chapter 11, um, okay. which is a, a restructuring process. And that's the one that you often see in, in the news, right? It, which restructuring of corporate entities, things like that. Okay. I, that's, that's not what my office handles. My, my office handles consumer bankruptcies. So by consumers, I mean, um, folks who are taking out credit cards, your neighbors, uh, your small business owners, things like that. Okay. So, and, and there's there's two options for someone who's having serious financial issues, um, who's who's an individual, right? So there's a chapter seven, which is a complete discharge of someone's debt. Um, in the and then there's also a chapter 13, which is what we would know as a, uh, a wage earners plan. Okay. Um, the biggest difference between the two is that they're, the wage earners plan, you're making monthly payments towards uh, the total sum of your debts. Okay. And that's generally a three to five year plan where you'll make monthly payments to an individual who's called the trustee. And at the end of that three to five year plan, the remainder of your debt is forgiven. So oftentimes, uh, very rarely will you end up paying back 100% of what you owe over three to five years. It's generally often, it, sometimes it's like pennies on the dollar of what you'll end up paying back in three to five years. A chapter seven is different. You're making no payments. If you meet those wage uh, if, if, if you're below, if you make below a certain weight wage threshold, you'll qualify for a chapter seven and it's a complete liquidation of, um, well, it's supposed to be a liquidation of your assets to satisfy your creditors. However, that's only a liquidation of assets that are non-exempt. Okay. Uh-huh. So you have non-exempt assets and exempt assets in a chapter seven and, um, the ones that are non-exempt, 
the trustee, who's an individual who's appointed to each bankruptcy, um, they're, they're well-respected attorneys in the area, and they'll oversee the bankruptcy process. And they uh, will, will check to see uh, what's non-exempt, and if it's non-exempt, then it goes to the trustee and it's liquidated to satisfy your creditors. So I know I said a lot there, um, and, and I'm, I'm happy to parse it out. Yeah, um, just yeah. Let, let's parse it out a little bit. So yeah. For, so chapter seven, can I kind of describe that one as the less friendly type? Is that the more serious type? It's less friendly for the creditors because they get they generally get nothing. Right? Okay. If 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 the if the debtor doesn't have a lot of assets, uh, which is. It, it, which oftentimes, if, if they don't okay. have a lot of assets, that's what I'll suggest for for a type of bankruptcy, right? Um, because if they if if their house doesn't have a lot of equity in it, and they just have one car, and they don't have like a valuable stamp collection, you know, those are all going to be exempt assets, I, which I, means that the creditor is going to end up with nothing. Yeah, I have to imagine yeah. that it, for people at this point in their life. I'm just imagining that there there wouldn't be much much in the way of assets with much value that could be liquidated, or or is that, or are you saying that you're choosing this for the people that don't have much in the way of assets because you don't want the people that do have assets to lose the assets? Bingo. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. If, if, yeah. if you had a lot of assets, I might suggest doing a wage earners plan because I can make. Uh, I can pay back the total value of your assets across three to five years and you get to keep, you know, your fancy boat that you have that, okay. you, that you keep in Maine, right? Um, Go ahead, Peter. Alyssa, I like that. Yeah. I would like one thing, I, and I maybe Sean can help me to understand this. I, I believe that the decision of the seven or the 13 is very much done by the judge in the case. The way I thought that it all worked was a consumer who's a destitute consumer with all this debt, in a sense, lays their case before the court, and the and it's the judge's decision that ultimately allows them to go down the seven path or the thirteen path. Is that is that correct? No, that's not correct, Peter. Uh, oh, I could file. Okay. So if you came into my office tomorrow, um, I could file mm-hmm. either a Chapter Seven petition for you or a Seven petition, and it would okay. be up to me as the attorney to discuss with you as to why one might be okay. more valuable to than another. Now, what okay. what you may be describing is is there's oftentimes when um, a a Chapter Seven debtor um, doesn't qualify for a chapter seven or they have too much discretionary income at which okay. point a someone could step in and could motion to have your case converted to a chapter 13 plan um okay. and you know and, and at that point the court will step in and will look at the totality okay. of the circumstances and might convert okay. your chapter seven petition into a 13 so that might be what you're describing okay that okay. is what I'm thinking. Okay. But one, let me let me throw just one other thing in here, a little curveball. I'd love to hear Sean comment on, and that is you, Alyssa. You've been talking about the number of bankruptcies. Yeah. So here's another factoid, and I'd love to hear what the number is. People are more and more filing multiple bankruptcies. Oh. Which I would love to understand more about that. How is it that someone can go through a bankruptcy and then get all, like, let's say, say seven or thirteen, and then later on get out of that, then build up their debt again, and then do it again? Oh, how prevalent is that? Yeah, it's. I would say probably a third of my cases are people who have filed the bankruptcy before. 
Um, so I, I think, again, that's anecdotal, but it happens yeah. more than you think, right? Um, the the rules the rules are that you can that you can file uh, multiple petitions, but there's you have to wait after you get a discharge. So a discharge is a, a forgiveness of your debt or a completion of your wage earners plan, depending on your, if you're in a seven or a thirteen. Okay. So after the after you've reached that endpoint, right? A certain amount of years has to go by where you cannot file a bankruptcy. Um, and there's, I think it's seven years, sorry, it's eight, uh, eight years for a chapter seven. Um, and after a 13, it can be six years. So uh, several years. So what Peter's describing is theoretically someone could rack up a bunch of debt, $30,000 worth of debt filed for bankruptcy in 2000. And then, uh, once they get their discharge in, you know, late 2000, Eight years from then, in 2008, they could acquire hmm. another $50,000 worth of debt and then file again, right? And, um, and did you say roughly a third of the people that you're helping through bankruptcy have filed before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they come from a variety of different situations, right? Like someone who's filing a Chapter 13 is often in a very different situation than uh, someone who's filing for a 7. Okay. But it, you know, if someone comes to me for a Chapter 13, generally they're they're a homeowner or they, um, you know, their car is about to be repossessed, something like that. So that's vastly different than someone who has uh, an insurmountable amount of credit card debt, right? Okay. Um, so, you know, sometimes I'll get someone who's who was facing a foreclosure in 2000 and then in 2008 they have uh, all sorts of credit card debt or they, they had a... Um, you know, a, a, a medical issue that, that caused them to rack up a bunch of debt. Okay. Um, so, so chapter seven yeah. is such that, um, assets are liquidated, what non-exempt assets are liquidated and whatever proceeds of that go to the creditors. And then the slate is wiped clean. Correct. Yeah. And the, the, the idea is, is, um, the, the case law refers it to as, kind of like taking a bath and then you come out of the bath and you're clean yeah right you're clean the the, the debtor is clean is that like a baptism <laughs> right right i guess yeah yeah, yeah. okay uh yeah. lawyers you know like we like to be philosophical and stuff okay. use imagery like that right <laughs> but the um my my goal is my goal as an attorney in in a chapter seven and and it's analogous to like getting on a bus so like before you get on a bus Right. You, you take all your stuff, you get whatever you can that you can fit in the bag. You then get on the bus. We go through the bankruptcy process. The bus keeps moving on. And then when we get off the bus, my goal is a bankruptcy attorney to have you hold on as much as you could in that uh, suitcase that you brought on. Right. Okay. That's my goal as a bankruptcy attorney, uh, that at the end of the process that you got to hold on to as many of your assets as you could. Sure. Um, certainly within reason. Right. Like we can't I can't fraudulently undervalue assets, things like that. Yeah, like it, there has to be a justification as to where we uh, how we assess certain things. So that's that's the basic premise behind a chapter seven. In in um, I know I touched a little bit about that. There's an income requirement for Chapter Seven. Yeah, there is, mm -hmm. and it's it's that you have to make you have to make less than a certain amount for the past six mm -hmm. months, and that changes each year mm -hmm. depending on what the median income for the state is. So I, I pulled some of the the numbers for Massachusetts for a family of one. You have to make less than um, 
37500 in the past six months from when you file for bankruptcy. If that's for a one-person household? One-person household, which equates to about an annual salary of 75000 Two-person household, 48000 $96,000 household income. Three-family household, one uh, 58000 117,000 annual. I'm sorry, what's the difference between the two numbers you're giving me? Uh, Sorry, six months. Oh, over a six-month period, a single person can only make 37,500. Okay, so you can fall under the ceiling if if a single person makes, okay, double that, I understand. Exactly, exactly. So you could could be part of the Trump family or the Gates family. And if you have, as long as you had in six months, so from January to oh. June, you made less than 37500 as a family of one, it doesn't matter that you're part of the Gates or the Trump family. Oh, interesting. You can okay. file for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Okay. You, you qualify for a Chapter 7 if you made less than 37500 in that six-month period. And you just have to file in that period of time? They're not going to look at what you're making in the next six months? Correct. Okay. Yeah. All bank- bankruptcies are like filing for your taxes. It's a snapshot of what your financial situation is at the time that you file. The one exception to that is inheritances, which can be grabbed within six, uh, 180 days after you file. Okay. But everything else is all backward looking. It, the court is is only concerned with really the six months prior to when you filed. So okay. if you file on June 1, they're going to be concerned from... June 1 to January 1 of the same year, right? That's all that they care about is what your income was there for purposes of a seven. Um, and, and and if I could throw something else in too, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe there's also a minimum and there's a name, I can't remember the name, it's like the Ryan test or some test which says uh, the court or the, the situation can't leave a person below a certain amount. So part of the test on the minimum side is we don't want to leave this person eating dog food for the rest of their six months. There has to be some minimal amount that they're able to retain, right? You can you probably know the details better than I, so that they can't be too high on the income nor too low on what they retain so that there's a livability uh, consideration in there. Is that right, Sean? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think what you're describing, um, Peter, is that there's – the, the the court and the trustee who's overseeing the process will be concerned about what your disposable monthly income is, right? Like, so mm-hmm. if if you're making under thirty five thousand in the past six months, which you know that's an okay amount, I think that's yeah. about what the median salary is in Massachusetts for a family of one. Um, so it, it's it's not um, they can't they can't just convert you to a seven for any reason but if you have a high disposable monthly income so after your your expenses things like that they can look at mm-hmm. the totality of the circumstances and even if you make less than that 75,000 or that 35,000 over the previous six months they can still convert it to a chapter 13 if your disposable monthly income is high right so like if you're not paying a lot of student loans or if you're not you know for whatever reason your market basket bill isn't all that high um you know they they can still convert you to a chapter 13 to satisfy your creditors um if you have a high disposable Mm -hmm. monthly income so i think that's what you're referring to peter 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so for Chapter 7, you have to, I understand, you have to fall under certain income uh, limits, right? There's a ceiling. You can't qualify for it if you make too much money in that six-month period. You talked about uh, the assets that will be liquidated to satisfy the debts in Chapter 7, and you mentioned exempt versus non-exempt. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on that in terms of what generally falls into what category? Yeah, yeah. So it, 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 this is a common concern of ours when someone comes into my office that they're always saying, I, I can't afford to get rid of my car. I can't I can't lose my house. I can't file for bankruptcy. I can't um, you know, I, I, I can't lose my stamp collection or whatever it is. Or maybe that they 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 sell hobby jewelry on the side. I can't lose my jewelry maker. The, the chances are that most people are going to fall under that anyways. And and that's because of statutory exemptions. And there's a variety of uh, statutory exemptions. There's a federal, there's a federal set of exemptions and then there's a, a state set. And in Massachusetts, I can choose either. Okay. And depending on the situation, I might choose one over the other, but I, I'll just, I'll, I'll read you some of the ones for Massachusetts. So, you know, so for a car, I can exempt up to uh, seven thousand five hundred worth of equity in the car. Okay. So as long as the car, uh, the car's equity is less than seventy five hundred, then you get to keep the whole car outright. Okay. And uh, if and if you don't, you have to sell the car and get a different one that has less than seventy five hundred of equity. Yeah, or we would find out, like, let's say if the car is worth 9000 if there's 9000 of equity in it. Okay, so the difference between 7500 and uh, 9000 1500 So I, I would, at that point, we might just pay the trustee the 1500 to let you keep the car, right? Because the non-exempt part of that asset is 1500 in equity in the car. Okay, um, yeah. So, but there's, there's a caveat to that, right? There's a thing called a wild card. So in the statutory exemptions, I can wildcard up to uh, 1,000 uh, and an additional 4,000 that can be used for furniture, tools of the trade, or an automobile. Hmm. So that that could help cover oh, us okay. too. Oh, okay. Um, but there's, there's a variety of other things. Jewelry, up to $1,200. Your homestead. That's the biggest thing. Everyone's always concerned about in the chapter seven, will I get to keep my home? The reality of it is, is that as long as you're home has less than $500,000 worth of equity in oh. it, and you have a recorded homestead on it, you're golden. Like, you get to keep all that. The trustee can't take it. Um, um, okay, I have almost never understood why I need a homestead until what you just said. Okay. Uh, I'm always like, I know I need a homestead. I, I, I don't really understand why. Yeah. Sorry, Peter, do you have to go? Yeah, I'm sorry, but I do have to go. I have a okay. call at nine. Thank but you for calling in. Say, on, on my home, my home buyer side, absolutely all folks should know, pay 60 to 70 bucks to get a home yeah. stead, and you'll get that security that Sean is talking about. Awesome. It's a no-brainer. Thank you. you. Amen, Peter. Thank you, Thank Peter. You. That was Thank Peter Mullen. Thanks for calling in. Peter Mullen, Thanks, American, Peter Consumer, American Consumer Credit Counseling. Um, Sean, we have to take a quick break. We're going to be right back. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. Great discussion this morning so far regarding bankruptcy and other things related to that. Uh, Sean P. Kelly with Mark Law Firm as our guest this morning. Offices in Lowell, Woburn, and Andover. Uh, We're just taking a break. We'll be back in a few minutes.